Today I am here with Michelle Rene Valladeras, a PhD from the Faculty of School of Education and the Associate Director of National Education Policy Center, and Kate Somerville, a PhD student from the, National, the Educational Foundation's Policy and Practice here at CU Boulder. So today we are here to talk about some of the K-12 impacts on the uh, education, sorry, we're here to talk about some of the impacts on K-12 education under coronavirus. All right, so first question would be, when did your organization begin looking into these issues under the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, when did you start kind of addressing the impacts that COVID was having on K-12 education? Well, um, thank you so much for having us, John. And this is Michelle, just so you can hear our voices separately. Um, and NEPC, I mean, as we're part of the University of Colorado Boulder, so obviously at the same time the rest of the campus was thinking about moving to remote work in early March. But I think we started seeing concerns come up in February in the U.S. Um, I think internationally, um, play, uh, we were seeing that schools in China and um, in Hong Kong and then in other parts of Asia were already moving to online learning immediately um, as the pandemic hit there. But it was really around the same, I mean, it, the pandemic hit education at the same time it hit the rest of this country. Um, and there was a particular week um, in March when all schools you know, around the country shut down within a week of each other, or the majority of schools around the country shut down within each other. So we started um, sharing statements and reflections and um, really trying to think about what research exists that can leverage and build on um, our understanding of inequity in this moment, because we we knew and anticipated once we saw that school shutting down that students with the most with the highest needs were going to be be even more impacted than they normally are in an unequal education system. So, and if I could add, Michelle, oh yeah, go no, ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, this, and thank you again for having us. This is Kate. Um, I think that. Another part of the work at NEPC that Michelle and I are both a part of is the Research Hub for Youth Organizing. And we kind of saw from the groups that we were working with who are organizers in communities all over the country, we kind of saw from the inside out what they were starting to have to think about and deal with. So I think that that also really gave us um, an idea of what communities and schools were starting to think about and deal with. So with these inequalities which would you say have increased uh, the severity of these inequalities has increased the most are there any that have had the biggest impact from covid would you say that um, there's anyone specific that has really suffered well i don't think that there is um you know it's so soon that we can't say with a hundred percent evidence that this this group has been impacted more than other groups. I think that research is going to have to come out as um, us and our colleagues spend time looking at the data and looking at the impact. Um, but but what we have heard more anecdotally from the youth organizers and then from school districts we work with, or um, a lot of our colleagues in the school of ed are also teachers of teachers, right? So they're touching many many schools around, especially the Colorado Front Range. Um, so, so we know for sure that, um, 
the most obvious impact was felt by students who didn't have a computer or didn't have Wi-Fi access. And um, that's a, in terms of most immediately, right? If you move to online learning and you don't even have a tool to access learning, that's a real, real problem. But then as we started to see, um, part of the, the way that this rolled out is each teacher in each school, in each school district, in each state, around this entire country came up with their own platform and way of teaching. And that autonomy is fabulous in some ways because it allows teachers to adapt to their unique context. But it's also extraordinarily challenging when you have two weeks to switch your entire curriculum or in some cases a weekend to switch your entire curriculum to online learning. Teachers were doing things like having Zoom meetings um, with all students without realizing that if a student is undocumented and in a photograph that somebody takes a screen share or takes a shot of and posts on Facebook, that that, that could then become searchable by the Department of Homeland Security and others. Um, so by that student participating in class, they were putting their family at risk. The same thing you could imagine if... Um, a young person is um, part of a family who's escaped domestic violence. And in a lot of cases very early on, especially teachers were requiring students to turn on their video and participate by video um, or send photographs or upload photographs, all of which have data information on it. So the data privacy concerns were real from the outset. And our colleagues um, in the commercialism and education research unit of NEPC um, have been studying issues with data privacy across different platforms for a really, really long time. So we saw that immediately and right away in terms of data privacy and student identity, and then in terms of basic access to education, because if you needed to have a computer and you needed to have access to the internet, that's hard. But then what we realized as you know, the first couple weeks of crisis turned into months, is that access is about so much more than having the hardware or even the Wi-Fi connection. So if your parents are both essential workers, say one works at the grocery store and the other works in healthcare, and your parents are both working and you have two siblings who are younger than you, you're a high school student with a middle school sibling and an elementary school sibling, during the day you need to meet the needs of your siblings in addition to attending class. And how does that compare to a house where there is one parent who can be working with the elementary school kid on teaching their curriculum? What we found is that you can't take away the teachers from the education and still have the same kind of education. The kind of one-on-one -on -one checking in that goes on in a classroom or the making sure that students understand a topic or the multiple modalities for learning and teaching, you can't do all of those online. And so a lot of kids, including kids with disabilities, also lost out in terms of having that access. So you think about how can you do physical therapy virtually? You can't unless you can have a parent do physical therapy with an elementary school kid. Well, which parents are home and have flexible enough jobs that for the one hour or the half hour that a physical therapist from the school district is available, you're available. There's, there's obvious income disparities there too and then Kate I'll let you go ahead and add um yeah Michelle I think all of the things that you said were things that I was thinking about too and then even on like a, the most basic level a lot of students get their breakfast and lunch at school 
Um, so I think that that was also a really immediate challenge that a lot of communities had to face and schools had to, you know, come up with contingency plans um, about how we're getting food to these students and how we're getting um, food to these families. So all of the things Michelle said, and then even thinking about those basic needs that, that school often provides for students, because that's what we've kind of put on schools to, to meet those needs in society. Yeah, and I think we see that, like, Schools are not like, but absolutely that schools are the center of many, many communities. And in communities of high need, they provide an even more important resource. Safe places for children to be is, is as important as teaching and learning, is as important as eating. And um, schools that are community schools might also provide health care or be an access point to public health care. These things are really, really underestimated and undervalued in normal times and I think COVID made everybody stop and really realize the role of public school teachers and public schools in providing the needs to all of these needs to kids. So you mentioned that part of it is that students don't get that kind of personalized education because um, they can't check in. Uh, what kind of effects do you feel like that kind of, that might have? Do you feel like that lack of one-on-one -on -one communication is going to do harm? Do you feel like it will produce great? What kind of an impact do you feel like that specifically will have? Oh, I mean, if you have a kid with, say, um, ADHD, right? Mm -hmm. Part of how they engage in a classroom is by having a teacher to teach and engage with or by having alternate modalities to engage them in the curriculum. So if they're now in front of a two-dimensional screen, sitting there looking and you're expecting a kid who has a hard time paying attention to suddenly pay attention when they're just watching a video or, um, well, I'll give you a real tangible example from, you know, my own child who, ha who is the daughter of two professors. They were learning um, volume in math class. And when a teacher teaches volume in math class, you can have a cube there and you can explain to the kids right away, the kids can touch and feel and see that there's six sides to a cube and they know that but if you're only watching it on a video and the cube that they're showing on the video has all colors on the same side you can't really tell that you're looking at a cube versus a square versus something else in the way of like really truly understanding and getting volume so when I when she was struggling I I with my PhD job could stop go downstairs get out some of her old blocks from when she was little and give her five minutes on volume that she was able to understand and access the curriculum really well after that. But it occurred to me how many other kids went through the lesson on volume and just never got it. Um, I'm not a classroom teacher, so I don't know the impact it had on grades. And a lot of schools did um, switch to a pass-fail, which I think was a brilliant idea in terms of like why should kids be punished with low grades for not being able to access the curriculum um, some of the youth organizers we work with were fighting for um, making sure that there were no fails this semester especially at the high school level because some kids simply couldn't get access to a computer fast enough especially in cities like new york that were so hard hit and there was just no mobility to even be able to go and get a computer i mean yeah if you don't have that individualized teaching and learning a teacher doesn't know, is my kid not turning in the work because both of their parents are sick with COVID, or is the kid not turning in the work because they don't understand what volume is? Um, 
that's a huge loss in learning and that's a huge loss in social emotional support. Kate, you've been a classroom teacher. You might have some other perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that stands out to me is just, so when, when we learn to be classroom teachers, we talk a lot about formative and summative summative assessment. Formative assessment is when you ask a question in class and you look around to see if there's a look of confusion on your student's face, if they're excited about what they're learning, ask them for a thumbs up. And I think that that whole um, process of monitoring must be really, really difficult to do on a screen because, I mean, part of it is just like reading the room and picking up the vibes of your students. And I think that a lot gets lost in translation there online. Um, and that's how teachers adjust in real time. So I'll ask a question when I'm teaching something. And if my students look at me like I'm crazy, I'm like, okay, I need to go back and re-explain that. And I think that um, that I can't imagine doing in the same way and in a way that is effective um, online. And I know that so many teachers are probably being so creative right now and coming up with really great ways to do that. But just that level of difficulty, just to be able to adjust instruction in real time, I think must be really difficult. Um, and Michelle, like you said, the social emotional aspect. Um, when I when I have my students come in every morning, I do like a check about how they were feeling, and I think that that is so important in learning. If if they said they were feeling blue, which we did a color system, I knew you know what you're going to need some extra help to get in a place where you can learn today. And I think that um, not being able to like give a little hug or give a high five if that's what the students need is. Um, really hard uh, just in supporting students as people, but also affects their learning process as well. Do you feel like students might get left behind um, over time, depending on how long this continues because of that? Do you feel like students might see long lasting impacts throughout their education because of this? Oh, without a doubt, yes. <laughs> There's no way that this doesn't impact. But you know, the impact can be in all kinds of ways. I think. Some kids are also getting a very important life lesson right now, which is in moments of crisis, we work together and we take care of each other and we move forward with the crisis together. And that's something that's incredible, you know, that that work can pause for a minute um, in order for us to take care of each other. And I think that's a hugely important lesson to teach. But um, in terms of curriculum, you know, some school districts said, let's try, let's aim for teaching 50% of the curriculum we would normally teach because they can't have, kids can't sit on a computer for eight hours the way they can sit at school for eight hours or six hours, depending on the school. So they were immediately saying, let's cut the curriculum in half. So that's half the curriculum definitely the students didn't get. Um, if we go back to some sort of hybrid system in the fall where students can, um, to get some level of work back and forth of, you know, like getting back on track or making up for things missed. I mean, I think we have to realize the whole world paused for a semester. So all kids are in the same place and we need to catch our breath a little bit about that. Like, and just be a little bit real that, you know, second semester of math for all kids in the United States isn't going to look like what it's looked like every year. So when teachers get kids in the fall, like, they're going to have some different things to work on. But long-term impact, if we moved to an entirely virtual learning permanently, there would be huge, huge disparities. And that, you can look at our work on virtual learning and um, 
and the long-term impacts of that. Like we have studies of that. Um, we know that low-income students of color, are the attrition rates or the push-out rates or the dropout rates, whichever way you want to call them, they're all the same, are much higher for low-income students and students of color in 100% online environments. And so we know that, that if this went on forever, it would definitely have long-term learning impacts. But, you know, living it through a crisis will define this generation without without question the same way the Great Depression defined my grandfather's generation. Um, so it will have an impact. There will be long-term impacts even if we went back to normal in the fall, but we know it won't be normal in the fall. We know it'll be a new normal. So, yeah, without, without question. But what will they be? We don't know. And I think it's also important to consider how this time outside of school is affecting people, people differently. Like we know that certain students have more opportunities outside of school than um, other students. And I think that this time outside of school, while everyone is experiencing this time, I think it's going to fall differently on um, low-income students and students of color as well. You mentioned the idea of an, a virtual learning environment. On the NEPC website, uh, there was a paper published about virtual learning, uh, about the, how there were, let me see here, it um, talked about the invest, the argument for investing in virtual schools, and it sounded like the NEPC paper was more against that idea because of some of those flaws you mentioned. Um, would there be any other kind of overall pros and cons of a virtual learning environment or kind of more emphasis or investment in virtual learning? Yeah, I mean, we'll, we would... That would be an excellent follow-up interview with our colleagues Faith Boninger and Alex Molnar at the National Education Policy Center. They know this issue much, much better than I do. Um, but for sure, you can see huge disparities in access to curriculum, into to the kinds of support that students need, in the ability to differentiate curriculum. Now, sometimes differentiate means just giving kids a different model. What I'm talking about is the example I was just giving with my daughter and. The second I showed her a physical cube, she understood volume um, and she couldn't get it in another way. So that ability, I mean, it's what Kate's talking about to do temperature checks while you're teaching and really engage with each of your students and then provide all of the other support schools provide a safe um, place for children to be while their parents are at work, to provide healthy meals, to provide recreation, to provide, um, we know I've done a lot of work studying out of school learning time and the opportunities that high income kids have for things like access to music or extracurricular sports and all of those other things are a whole nother disparity. So if we moved to a world in which curriculum was just offered online and all those other activities were up to individual parents to find and contract and pay for, we know that the students who have, whose parents have resources money and time will have more and there's a lot of work on that as well from other scholars um, that that we could point to but um, the virtual schooling the pros and cons for sure NEPC has great cautions about it and our newsletter that said um, really think about the cautions of virtual schooling that came out right after COVID in early March would probably be an easiest quick reference for listeners but um, 
the, the privacy concerns are real too in terms of student data um, being downloaded and sold from learning apps. That's happening. It's not, you know, conspiracy theory. Um, so with that, the data security issues around children using these learning apps um, was another thing that was another publication about um, these K-12 inequalities under coronavirus that NEPC published. So when it comes to these security issues, you published a list of questions that um, should be asked about data prior to really kind of getting into these digital learning environments. Um, is there anything that you think can be done to protect students when it comes to that those issues around data and that issue of virtual learning? Yeah, I mean, I can run through some of those questions that we suggested you should ask. So first is, what procedures does the school have in place to inform parents about the educational technology products that their children are asked to use, including which data each product collects, stores, and uses from students? So in some states, we know that that information is required to be shared with parents, and in other states, it's not, and it varies by states and states, state by state. The other, and a second question would be, what procedures does the school have in place to obtain parental consent for their kids to use particular products? Um, so, uh, so companies, for example, like Google or Zoom or Summit Learning contract with the, with the schools directly, and the schools are providing consent for the parents. So the parents aren't actually providing their consent. And when you have young people, like I talked about, in high-risk populations, the school district is providing consent on for parents and on behalf of parents, and parents aren't having the opportunity to make those decisions for their families. Um, there's a list of 10 questions, and I won't go on and on, but another really big one is about personally identifiable information. In some places, um, there's concern that, you know, as researchers, we have to get all kinds of secure data clearances and sign-offs if we ever use individualized student level data we get we get pseudonyms or we get fake student numbers so we can't actually trace who an individual student is some of the data that's collected on these grading um, this grading software actually lets companies have access to students records and it's that violates students freedom um, freedom students information right so those are all on on that I want to run back to one other issue that um, we brought up in a newsletter and I was actually talking to people from the just before this call um, from the Youth First initiative and there's a whole nother issue of equity in time of COVID and this is youth who are incarcerated um, in detention camps are not not in situations in physical situations that keep them safe from the virus of COVID. And in a lot of them, learning and extracurricular activities have been cut off. So these youth are locked up and they're given very little activities to do. Some of them, you see reports of some places, youth are still having to take showers with seven people to a shower or sleeping in rooms of hundreds of people. Um, there's just absolutely no reason these youth should be locked up right now. They need to be released and they need to be sent home to their families. And then we need to take that money that would have been spent largely in a lot of times to private companies who are running youth detention centers and invest them in the communities so communities can provide the mental health services and the physical health services and all of the other
whether a job training, these these supports that youth could actually use to turn their life around, it truly, a minor offense should not be a death sentence. And that's the case that's happening as, as kids come down with COVID in these detention centers. I um, believe, uh, I believe I saw that, just want to make sure that I am talking about the same newsletter. It recommended that really, that their um, that youth who are not a risk to safety of others should be released, uh, removing youth with coronavirus symptoms or chronic illnesses, and it also recommended keeping um, youth out of kind of these uh, incarcer keeping youth out of incarceration or focusing on on um, keeping them out. Uh, that's the yeah. All right. So, yeah, it was the April 30th newsletter, and in there we shared, you know, as of April 30th, the states that had reported outbreaks either among the youth or staff or both of COVID-19, and it was quite a lot then. I'm sure if you looked at the data now, it would be even more. It just, um, that's exactly, I mean, you summarized it already, but the idea is that there there really is no reason that that especially nonviolent offenders should be incarcerated in this moment, um, of youth in particular. Um, citing um, some of our scholars, Janelle Scott, Tina Trujillo, Michelle Moses, and Kara Finnegan, um, a while back they wrote a report that um, really, really laid out how systemic violence, and th these are their words, systemic violence and disparate school discipline policies hinder equitable, just, and safe schooling. Um, and as in the citation, oh, and Daryl Jackson is the other um, scholar who wrote that. They said they restrict access to social opportunities and civil liberties. Research demonstrates that black and Latinx students experience police violence and school discipline unequally. Punitive educational and criminal justice policies disproportionately affect students, families, and communities of color, as well as teachers and the schools that serve them. So the evidence is there, um, and the evidence was there prior to COVID, and what we're seeing at the beginning of COVID is that all of this seeks to get, it, it, I mean, it just, we anticipate it's much, much, much worse now. All right. Um, so why, um, with focusing on keeping youth out of incarceration, are there any recommendations you would have on how that can be done? Are there any kind of um, actions you think can be taken to help kind of keep youth out of incarceration, especially during this time of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think one is you could just simply release youth into probation or, you know, back home or whatever their care plan is. I think then you should invest more money back in the communities so that there are social workers who can help the young people readjust back to their communities and get the resources they need, enroll back in schools, make sure they have a laptop, um, and that they're tested for COVID. Um, so I think it's as simple as that. Um, in terms of states that are doing it well, we're still trying to look into that or um, really the folks that the Youth First Initiative are doing that um, research. I don't have that data yet, but um, in terms of which states have done a good job, it's not, you know, it's still too soon to tell. And I think in general, um, that's what we refer to as the school to prison pipeline in education. So just thinking about this idea of punitive discipline policies in school that kind of bar students from school and then that's 
that's linked to um, youth incarceration as well. So kind of like stepping back and looking at our systems um, and looking at what we're funding and what we're focusing on. Um, like Michelle said, um, it's, it's aside from COVID, you know, we can be doing a lot of things like investing in mental health services in schools, um, social workers, instead of focusing on these punitive policies. And um, on a similar note to that, there is also the issue of the test optional proposals that um, some youth activists have proposed, which is to kind of remove standardized testing requirements from institutions because of the impact that COVID has had in terms of canceling tests or reducing those test resources. Um, do you feel like having though, what would you say the NEPC stance is when it comes to removing those requirements or having test optional requirements? Well, we can't speak off the cuff on NEPC stamps, but we can certainly share um, the work of our partners. Kate's been working with Student Voice, who is one of the student-led organizations who have been making that. And we can also share that the research is really clear that high stakes decisions should not be made for students based on a single test score. There's, for a long time, folks have have advocated for test scores, whether they're SAT or GRE scores, or um, test scores like high school exit exams should only be used in context or with other data. But I think this moment um, has really pointed out some of the issues and concerns with college entrance tests and AP exams. So Kate, why don't you share a little bit more about that? Great, so um, one of our youth organizing partners Student Voice was um, leading leading that campaign pretty pretty hard earlier in the month, and I think that the big thing to think about is, you know, right now during this time, this is not an equitable practice. Um, some students aren't able to take the test again. Some students aren't able to take the test the first time. Um, so right now, when things are kind of all out of whack and kind of we're, we're changing things because of COVID, this is not equitable. But then thinking about how equitable it is, like Michelle was saying, in regular times um, and using these tests as kind of an end all isn't really an appropriate way to use them. And considering students' lived experience and the expertise that they bring to the table that might not be shown in a test score um, is important. And I think a way that admissions um, departments can ensure that they're admitting students who are going to bring these really important viewpoints and bring their lived experiences and expertise to the table to a college community. So would you say in general then that, um, well, not in general, I don't want you to have to speak um, on behalf of colleagues or the organization, but would you say that in general, it would be a good idea to remove those kinds of test requirements? Um, do you say, do you feel like they do harm to students? I mean, I think that, um, I wouldn't say that tests themselves do harm to students, but I think over-reliance on a test instead of a composite measure of who the student is and how they are learning. Um, I, I'm a big believer in, um, using multiple forms of assessment and trying to understand multiple ways that is how a student is performing and who they are throughout their high school experience. So I think I can easily say that I feel like the, uh, uh, from my perspective as a researcher that the test options
optional idea is a fabulous one in terms of allowing students if they want to submit test scores or not um, is a fantastic idea. I don't work in college admissions, so it's hard for me to, you know, I don't want to say one way or, or definitively the other way that, you know, you should get rid of all tests in the whole universe because I think they can sometimes serve a purpose. But I think over-reliance on them, it's much easier to say, oh, everyone took this number and pretend that that number isn't laden with all kinds of inequalities. We know that tests like the SAT cost money, and we also know that tests bias students from high-income backgrounds, especially students who can pay for test prep classes. Um, and at that point, you're not actually measuring the learning, you're measuring how well someone does on a test. So I think what I would say is the test optional um, is a fabulous idea and um, allowing students to present a portfolio for their admissions that looks like who they are as a student um, so that comprehensive decisions can be made, I think is fabulous. Right. And I, I also think that the test optional movement um, position students as experts, which they are, they're experts in their own schooling experience. And um, I think listening to how a student would like to be um, assessed or evaluated and how they'd like to present themselves is important. Because if you have a student saying, you know what, I don't think that this represents me as a learner, I think it's really valuable to have other ways of learning about who that student is as a person and a learner. All right. So that comes to the end of my questions. So I want to know um, if there was one thing you would want our listeners to walk away knowing or one thing you'd like them to think about, um, or if there's just anything else you would like to talk about, what would that be? I think I'll echo what Kate just said and just really reinforce it, which students are experts of their own experience. They're going through education in unprecedented times. And if we take a moment to listen to them and learn from them, we can learn a lot about what we ought to do as adults to make both our education system and our society better. Um, I think we can't ignore that we're doing this interview and having this conversation as the Black Lives Matter movement is growing um, in peace and in momentum across the whole country. And the kind of groups we support at the Research Hub for Youth Organizing at CU Boulder, which is part of um, CU Engage and NEPC, um, these, these young people have been fighting for these issues and fighting these issues. Talking about things like the most vulnerable youth in a school, we were, we were talking about issues of incarceration and talking about issues of testing inequality Young people have been working on these inequalities for a long time, generations of young people. Um, certainly, um, Generation X was working on it, and certainly the civil rights movement happened and was led by students. Um, I think if we go back through history, young people have always been at the forefront of social movements. And when I look at this rising social movement in our country right now, I think as adults, we'd all do well to listen to young people of color um, who are organizing and explaining what their lived experiences in their communities and put value where they're asking for value. You hear young people asking for more mental health resources. You hear, you hear, some, you hear campaigns like fair testing or test optional. You also hear campaigns, um, counselors, not cops. 
students want to be prepared for college. Parents want their kids to have full and rich and meaningful lives. And it's really on us as adults to make sure that the inequalities that exist in society, that we each take stock in our role in them and our responsibility for healing them and remediating them and um, moving forward from the, the vast inequalities towards equity. I think it's no mistake that um, this rise in civic activism comes right after the whole country was shut down in the middle of a pandemic. I think um, the, there is a time and there is a moment right now where we as a nation have to be our best. And that's what the young people, Kate and I, have the really amazing fortune to work with, um, are telling us. And um, I think that's what I would want people to learn. I'll let Kate, you have the final word here. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, I, would, I would add to that and say, you know, pe young people have been talking about these inequities for a long time, as Michelle said. And I think it's really important to remember that while these inequities are being um, made worse or amplified during this COVID crisis, if and when we go back to whatever you know normal is, these inequities are still going to be affecting students. So we were talking about how some students don't have computers at home and they don't have um, as many outside of school opportunities to learn. And while that is really amplified during this time of COVID, that's going to still be affecting students when we all get back to the same classroom. So um, I think that just recognizing these inequities and um, remembering them when we are able to all return to classrooms because they're not going to go away and they're not going to stop affecting people and just kind of working, um, as Michelle said, to, to listen to youth and to follow youth because they are experts in their experience and they are experts in schooling and they know what they're talking about. So, For our listeners who might want to help these uh, youth and help these uh, young activists, uh, is there any way you would suggest that they do? I would start doing research in your own local communities and to see where the organizations are that are being led by young people, young people of color, or young people from low-income communities. Um, we, If you check out our website, the Research Hub for Youth Organizing at CU Boulder, um, you can find that um, the organizations we partner with and know um, in terms of the rising activism in this moment, I think um, the platform and ideas being put forward by the movement for black lives is really worth taking a look at and thinking about. Um, so I would I would hold all of those organizations and spaces up. And our newsletters list um, all the different topics, you know, as you know, John, is we've talked about today are, are talked about in our different newsletters. So people can definitely go there to learn more and read more and then find ways to support these young people, whether it's through volunteering your time, whether it's through um, helping them raise funds. These, these are amazing organizations run on teeny, teeny bu budgets. I promise you, your $20 will go very, very far at any one of these organizations and your 200 or 2000 would go even further. All right. Thank you. Thank you both for taking some time to talk with us today. Um, and thank you for helping us to shine some light on some of the impacts that uh, education is facing during the pandemic. Thank you. Thank you for having us.